have a seat. I just want to read um, some verses of encouragement. Just a reminder, um, you know, as we gather together on the first day of the week, one of the things that we are kind of declaring or, or reminding ourselves of is that we want to put God first. We want to start the week in his presence. And uh, just listen to these verses from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, 31 says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, we spend so much of our time uh, consumed by necessities, what we're going to eat, what we're going to do, where we're going to live. But Jesus reminds us that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that all these other things will be taken care of. And, uh, you know, that's something that we have to remind ourselves of. We have to reorient ourselves to the priorities that God wants us to have. Um, so as we sing this, uh, this next song, um, that's kind of the, the thought to have in mind. And, and just to, I guess I'd encourage you to kind of make this song a prayer of confession just to say, uh, God, you are more than enough for me. A couple of other things that I want to call to your attention before uh, we dig into the word, and that is uh, that we have uh, several different things going on. I encourage you to be praying for Marge and her family as they mourn the loss of Mike. Also want to encourage you that in a couple of weeks, actually on a Saturday, the 13th, we're having the work day for the Easter egg hunt, okay? We're planning on uh, scattering whatever, I don't know, 6,000 Easter eggs all around the property here so we can bring in a bunch of your friends, families, neighbors, and uh, guests to... Uh, hunt the eggs and then hear the gospel on uh, the 20, 20, 20th, I guess, of April. So, 13th is the egg packing day. Uh, we have a few days before then to collect more eggs and candy announcements and uh, all the information is in the bulletin for you there. Also, I want to uh, make sure that you know that we're blessed with the opportunity for several different ministry giving, oper uh, giving chances over the next few weeks. You're going to hear a lot about missions opportunities. There's a little extended bulletin announcement in the bulletin this morning. But God has blessed us and God is using us in many ways. Uh, the one I want to highlight this morning is for Lucas and Lois Richard. Lucas and Lois are a couple that were, are from this church that have been commissioned and sent out to Liberia. They're serving there. Uh, unfortunately, they had a shipping container that was en route to their country of mission, and while it was en route, the country changed the rules, and so they had duty-free leaving the United States. In the middle of the journey, it became taxable, and so there was a huge tariff placed on all of the goods in it, and then there were occurring costs because it was in the port, and uh, many countries around the world, it's just the cost of doing business 
you have to kind of incentivize uh, people to get things done, and then they had to pay uh, these, these uh, tariffs. Anyway, long story short, they incurred a great amount of, of uh, expense in getting things released, and so they took money that they had allocated for other things, and they still owe some money. And so we're going to do our best to try and encourage them and help pay these expenses. So that's the offering on the 14th. So that's what we're going to do by God's grace. We've got some other great things coming up. We've got a Haiti mission team going out. Brandon Short's going out. We've got uh, our quarterly mission offering coming up. So asking you to pray and asking you to believe. What if God really wants us to do and is able to do what he said he's able to do in Ephesians chapter 3, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Let's pray. Father, uh, I am so grateful for the privilege of being your child. And I just thank you for each one who has gathered here this morning, not by accident, but by divine appointment, we are here And I pray that by your spirit, you would work to open to us the word of God that we might see it for what it really is, not the word of men, but the word of God. I pray that you take the things that you want each of us to hear and let us hear from your word by your spirit for your glory and for the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd just like to uh, also say that uh, if you're here as a guest and this is your first time at Creekside Church, we're just really glad that you're here. There is an additional flap on your bulletin. If you would fill that out, and I don't know how you discreetly tear it off, you don't. You just rip the thing off, and then as the offering pouches go by, we just encourage you to put that in the offering pouch. We'd encourage you to stop by our guest table out there and pick up a little guest on us. Um, I, uh, I have not read this book, but in 1989, Stephen Covey wrote a very popular book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, in which he detailed his approach to becoming effective. Uh, this morning, we're going to read in another book, Five Habits of Truly Faithful People from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19. Now, there is a difference because in Covey's book, the, the habits of effective people are that, those things which make people effective. The five habits of truly faithful people that we're going to look at this morning aren't what makes us faithful, but what marks us out as faithful. Say that again. They aren't what makes us faithful, but they're what mark people who are faithful out as being faithful. So they're more the manifestation of faithfulness, not the means to it. Okay? And we are looking this morning at the life of Abraham. Abraham is his life characteristic. I used to teach a class to junior hires, and when you talk about Abraham, what's one word you use to describe Abraham? Faith, that's the guy of faith. And his life characteristic is declared for us in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. 
And it says in that verse, then he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He's a man of faith. Paul said the same thing is true for every person who's righteous. You're righteous in the same way that Abraham was righteous by means of faith. And Paul declares that in Romans chapter 4 verse 5. Abraham really shows us that we become alive, that we are justified before God by faith. And how those who are justified by faith live by faith. So his life is a picture of us, of all of faith. Living faith and faithful living, if you will. He's the man who shows us. Now, yeah, even as we had the first service this morning, we, it was brought up that he's not a perfect man of faith because we know from his story there were times when he really didn't exhibit great faith. But the story we read this morning in Hebrews chapter 11 is interesting because of all of the people listed in Hebrews 11 who are in this, you know, hall of faith, Abraham gets more press than anybody. More verses about Abraham than anybody. I invite you to turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, where from Abraham's example, we discover five hallmarks of authentic faith that are hallmarks which we admire but they're also the kinds of things to which those who are believers aspire it's not just what we learn about him but we want to emulate and and follow in his footsteps and so I'm in Hebrews chapter 11 I'm uh, beginning with verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11 I'm going to read down through verse 19 so I hope you follow along with me in the text by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead, at that as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith. Without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Five hallmarks. Five marks of true faith. And the first is revealed in verse 8. And we exhibit and and through authentic faith it's possible for us to obediently enter 
into the unknowable. By faith, Abraham obeyed God's call. Well, what was God's call? I'm not going to take you there, but you can read it in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at the abbreviated version, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 7, verse 3. So if there's a, uh, we have that slide of Acts chapter 7, verse 3. You can see that this is what it says. Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. That's kind of the Reader's Digest version. There he's told to go. Abraham took the word of God so literally and so seriously that he immediately left the security, the safety, and the familiarity of his homeland to go to a place he had no idea where he was going. I'll show you, God says. Just get up and go. That's what he was supposed to do. His obedience is the mark of true faith. And we've said that before. I say obedience is just faith with feet on it, Okay. So that's what you, when you think about obedience, you're just living out what real faith is. Uh, the map shows uh, the, the, the journey that he took, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but the, you know, maybe there's some discrepancy as to which way, but he made his way up the Euphrates River and camped out at Haran for a while, and then he was at Haran and made his way down into Canaan. Okay, So that was the deal. But he was the guy who believed it, Abraham. So He didn't know all the details. The thing that strikes me in the text is that he had a direction, but he didn't have any details. Just get up and go, and I'll show you where. He had a path, but he didn't have any of the particulars. He had the the course that was set before him, but none of the content that was to be played out. And yet he went. Some of you here this morning, you may think, well, I'm here in church. I don't know what all this church stuff is about, but you're talking about following God and being a man of faith. And perhaps the journey that God is calling you to is just to begin the journey of faith with God, period. To step out into the unknown of what it means to surrender your life to this Savior, to understand that you are a person who's separated from God because of your own self-directed, sinful, rebellious lifestyle and that you need to yield and turn from your own sinful, self-directed lifestyle and trust in Christ who said, I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's the journey maybe. You say, I don't know what all the details are. I don't know what all it is. But maybe you need to turn to a life of purpose and a life of peace that God offers you. Maybe that's the thing that God's calling you to do today. I don't know. Those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, maybe God's given you some direction, but you don't have any details. Maybe he's given you a path, you just don't have all the particulars. I don't know what that path might be. Maybe it's you have a neighbor that you haven't met yet. And you know that you're going to go meet the neighbor. You need to talk to the neighbor. You need to introduce yourself to the neighbor. But you don't know what to say. And maybe they have an annoying pet. Or maybe they have a peculiar way of doing things. Or maybe they're just kind of strange to you. You need to step out in faith. Maybe God's calling you to do that. Maybe God is calling you. You don't know what it's going to look like. But he wants you to invite some people with some kids to come to the Easter egg hunt. I don't know. Maybe God wants you to go on a short-term mission trip. Maybe God wants you to give 
You don't know how much, you don't know, but you just know that God has kind of landed on her. Maybe God wants you to start a new ministry at Creekside Church, or maybe he just wants you to get off your duff and be involved in one of the ones we got going on. I don't know. But God is the one who calls us and doesn't give us all of the details. He just says, trust me. Just trust me and go out and do it. Marla and I, are friends with a couple, and uh, they're, they're one, one of them is an American, one's a, a, a foreign national, and they were serving overseas in a third world country, actually. And they, they felt that God was calling them to leave that ministry to come to the United States of all places and serve. And what's really peculiar to me in this whole situation is the the, the the member of that couple who's a not from America really grew up not really liking Americans. And they didn't have all the details, but they had a direction. They didn't have all of the particulars, but they had a path. And so now they're serving the Lord in the United States because God made those things clear to them after they got up and went, you know, when they, when they made this decision to go. Through authentic faith, we will we'll obediently do what God has called us to do and enter the unknown, knowable. Secondly, we'll patiently endure the uncomfortable. Look at verse 9. It says, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Well, it wasn't as in a foreign land. It was in a foreign land. Abraham was an Alien. Faith enables patient and prolonged endurance in uncomfortable circumstances. Now, what made his circumstances uncomfortable? First of all, it was an unfamiliar circumstance. He truly was like a fish out of water because he was a monotheist, which means he believed in one God in a polytheistic land. His values, his morals, his religious practices were completely alien to the people in Canaan into which he came. He had left his family and all that was familiar, making his life awkward and uncomfortable. His lifestyle as an outsider was on a collision course with the culture in which he lived. It just was like, boom, we're going we're gonna to clash at at some point along the way. We're going to have this clash of cultures. Uh, I read a, a missionary biography. Uh, the title of the book is called Bruchko. It's a story of Bruce Olson, who uh, is a, of Scandinavian origin, and he left the Minnesota to serve in the, the jungles of South America, and he was immediately ostracized, criticized, and terrorized. I mean, he looked different than them. He acted different than them. He tried to speak, but even spoke differently than them. And yet he went. And he endured. And finally, God, by his grace, enabled him to triumph, enabled him to do ministry there. It's different. I don't know if you've ever traveled overseas or maybe some of you've been, I'll say this and get in trouble for it, but maybe some of you've been 
because some of our people are from here, but some of you have been to Chicago, you know, and you think that's like a foreign country. Or maybe you've been to California, you know, and those who are from Chicago think this is a foreign country, you know. You've been in a different, but if you've been overseas particularly, you know what it's like because there's just a different way of doing things. And it's not wrong, it's just different. But the difference makes us awkward. The difference makes it uncomfortable. It's just, I want, like my, my, my friend once said, he had some guy on a mission trip and the guy says, I just want a banana. You know? This is all he asks. Just give me a banana. Here's Abraham and his family and they're in this foreign land. Not very many of his family, you know, Lot and Sarah. And there they are. So it was un- unfamiliar. Then it's an un- unsettling living conditions. Notice the text says they were living in tents. Oh, we're going on a camp out. Yeah, for how long is the camp out? I thought you said we're going to have a land. I mean, you promised us a land, descendants, and blessings, and we have tents and sheep and goats. And we're vagrants and wanderers, emphasizing the transitory nature that all the patriarchs, because you notice in the text it says that along with Isaac and Jacob, which also gives you an idea that this lasted a while. Not just Abraham, but the heirs of the promise were also his, his, his child and grandchild, Isaac and Jacob. So it was a Long time living in tents, waiting for the promised land that was to be ours, that we were to be inherited. This, the heirs of promise owned no property, and this gave them no sense of permanence. No, that's unsettling. When, you know, you, you don't. I know for nine months I had this settled, unsettled sense of nothingness. I was living out of a suitcase and I literally, everywhere I went, I had to take my suitcase and put my suitcase in the van then somebody else's home and then somebody else's home and then put another and then put the suitcase in and travel with the suitcase and get the suitcase out. And I felt like I was going nuts. Okay, I did probably. Some of you think, yeah, he did. He went nuts. I think he's all telling us about it. Uh, but you understand how unsettling he his promised land. Okay, God, I'm here. So where's the land? I'm ready to put down my roots. And then there were unrealized promises. What did God promise him? You come up. Come on, Abraham. Just get up and go and I'll show you. Okay, I came and I'm here. Well, you're going to have this. You know, you're going to have all these descendants. Yeah, well, I'm 75 and I don't have any kids. It's kind of the clock's ticking. 25 years later, before he got his son, the son of promise, through whom all these descendants would come. But even he and Isaac and Jacob never saw all those descendants. And for sure, they never saw the land that had been promised them become their possession. It never became their possession. In fact, it was something like 500 years after Jacob died before any of the Israelites came into the promised land. How long are we willing to endure uncomfortable conditions in trusting God? Are we as patient to endure the discomfort When Abraham was called out, 
he went out and he camped out, but he never saw how things turned out. I don't know about you, sometimes I feel like I'm camping out. I've been called out, and I went out, and I'm camping out. So, okay, Lord, how's this going to turn out? I just don't know. And sometimes you feel it more than other times. We're aliens, folks. We are no different than Abraham. We are aliens and strangers in a foreign land, struggling with the difficulties and the discomfort of a transitory life on earth. I like what Arcand Hughes says, it's a dangerous thing when a Christian begins to feel permanently settled in this world. Authentic faith patiently endures the uncomfortable. Betty Carlson served as a blonde-headed, blue-eyed, fair-skinned, Swedish single woman in Africa as a missionary for three or four decades. Different culture, different language, single person. It was difficult for her, but she did it. I wonder if you feel like you are suffering as an alien and stranger as the lone voice for Jesus Christ in your family. Or in your marriage. Or in your workplace. Or maybe you're serving at great personal cost in the promised land, but you're out there and you're doing it, but there's not much reward. You don't see anything turning out. You're serving at great personal cost. I think of Marge McKeever, who sacrificed her life for her husband for the last several years, caring for this man. Without reward, without cheering, without kudos, just... Faith, couldn't come to church because she was with Mike almost all the time. Maybe our endurance of what's uncomfortable is physical suffering or emotional pain, and yet we're still pouring out to other people. Marl and I were just listening to a little podcast of Johnny Erickson Tata yesterday, and I think about her. 40-some years in a wheelchair. For what? For Jesus. By faith. Now, she didn't start that way. But she's there now. And you have your own challenges. You're in your own different territory of what the challenge might be. I don't know what it is necessarily, but some of these things resonate with me. You, some of you know what it's like to be in perpetual pain, and yet you're still called to serve. Some of you know what it's like to not get the rewards from other people, and yet God calls you to a painful ministry. And this is the thing of faith. Patiently endure the uncomfortable. 
Abraham did, patiently did. Thirdly, we continuously eye the eternal. Notice the little phrase in verse 10, 4. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The motivation for Abraham to continually endure in the uncomfortable and to step out into the unknown was his perspective. Abraham was looking, and notice the text says, for the city. There's only one city whose builder and architect is God. His sights were set on heaven. He endured by looking ahead, and I'm here to say that's what we need to do too. I endure by keeping my eye, as Paul said, on the prize. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. I press on towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is not the prize. If this is as good as it gets, I think we're in trouble. Keep our eyes on the prize. That's what he says. Living as a tent dweller in the land of promise, he never possessed, reminded Abraham that the foundation of his life was not in this world. He lived there as a tent dweller, reminded that, hey, the reason you're, this is not it. This is not the the end of the thing. The promised land where the patriarchs spent their time, and they were aliens and strangers, only points ahead to the promised land. Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. The rest, the rest, enter his rest. This is ultimately in heaven. When we're looking towards the heavenly city, then we gain the proper perspective to step out and endure the uncomfortable and engage in stuff that is like I, 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 do, I don't know where I'm going but I'm going there anyway the struggles of life in a foreign land only if I keep my eyes on heaven will I keep praying for my child who's strayed away from Jesus only as I keep my eyes on heaven will I keep praying for my family to turn towards Christ Only then will I be able to be sustained in the middle of my or your physical suffering and struggles. My eyes on the prize and I can keep going. Only then will I be able to endure the smears from my peers and the mocking and the scorn from my co-workers because I'm one of those Jesus people. Only then will I be able to go ahead, even though I'm mischaracterized by the culture, as an intolerant person. Or I'm marginalized by them as, eh, they're just irrelevant. Notice in verses 13 through 16, and I'm skipping over verse 12 intentionally, because I've grouped these few verses because I think the theme is the same. These verses in 13 and 16 expand upon this eye that's on the eternal. Okay? The focus of motivation for for living is this eye on the eternal. And it says all these, including Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, went to their grave believing without seeing the promised land possessed. They weren't told how it would happen. They weren't told when it would happen. Just the fact that the land would be their possession and their promise of God was enough. I wonder this morning, 
Is God's promise enough for us? Is it enough? Because if it's not enough, then he's not enough. But he's enough, so it should be enough. Think about it. They watered their sheep. They uh, buried their dead. They defended this land of promise. But that little strip in Palestine wasn't ultimately their focus. I'm summarizing verses 13 through 16. You'll have to go there your own. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles, strangers and exiles on the earth. Their loyalty wasn't with the land. Their loyalty was with the God who made the land. They patiently endured. You know what a stranger is? Strangers are not liked by the people that are in the land, okay? Exiles are people who are suspects, you know? These exiles, I don't know. We don't know them. We don't trust them. They would sing this song. The world is, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckoned me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And God honored their faith by saying, I'm their God. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Wouldn't that be cool? Just put your name in there. See, God would say that of you. I'm the God of, and then put your name in there. Because of our faithfulness. Because of our commitment to him. He's my God. I'm their God. You see, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, says that our citizenship is in heaven. From which we anxiously await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm not sure we live like that. I'm not sure we live like our our, uh, citizenship is in heaven. I wonder, do we establish our priorities and engage in practices with an eye on the eternal, even though we live in the temporal? We can't change the fact that we're in this world, but we can change how we live in this world. Does our perspective and do our practices reflect an eternal perspective? How and on what do I spend my money? I mean, why would you give to help Lucas and Lois out of a tight spot? Well, you know, it's their problem. No, it's not. It's our problem. Because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ and we're partners in ministry. Why should I give money to promote the cause of Christ? Well, an internal perspective would change your view on that, would change my view on that. Instead of just thinking about spending money on me, I would spend money on other things. Does it affect my eternal perspective, affect how we work? Do we do our work heartily as unto the Lord, not as pleasers of men, but pleasers of God? And where we work, and how we view where we work. Well, I'm just punching the clock, you know, just getting my check, just getting my check. Or am I a light in a dark and dreary world to show the people of God, uh, that, that God exists and that I'm testifying to his reality. 
Does it affect whether or not we're willing to stand up for the truth? Our leisure pursuits. Where we even live for Pete's sake. What do you mean? Well, I don't know. I, I, people say, well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to move over here. Why? Did you ever pray about it? Like, would God want me to move there? Because maybe he has ministry for me there. That I, I move and I get vocations and locations and avocations because of my commitment to serve a risen Savior. I'm living by faith and looking ahead with my eye on the eternal. I wonder, and I ask myself this, am I enslaved to the temporal or is my eye on the eternal even though I live here? Through authentic faith, we confidently entertain the impossible. This is verses 11 and 12. And by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. It's an interesting passage because in this discussion of Abraham, Sarah's thrown in there because Sarah is directly connected to Abraham in the promise of the, the son that they would have and then the descendants that would come from that son, ultimately the descendant, the person in the work of Jesus Christ. By faith. Think about that. For Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, conception was a biological impossibility. That's what it means, that she was given power, the ability to conceive, basically. This is an act of God. And then you think about Abraham. Oh, this old boy was beyond the, any probability of inception. Because it says, the text says, he considered himself as good as dead. You know. I mean, he was an old timer. And so here we have it. But through their faith, the unimaginable became possible. The impossible happened because they believed God. And you say, yeah, but they laughed at God. Yeah, I know that. Okay, you read Genesis 17 and 18. And the initial response of both of these people was, that's a good one, God. That's a really good one. Like, tell me another one. That's a, that's a late night uh, show, you know, laugh. That's, that's great. That's great. We're going to have a kid. But you know what? Faith is not just a picture in time. It's progressive. Faith is not a matter of perfection, but progress. And what, we, what I see in verse 11 is Sarah's progress of faith. It says that she believed and because she received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. Why? Because she considered God faithful and able. He was able to do it. And we know from verse 12, it says this, Therefore also, there was born of one man. Oh, there's Abraham's faith. And Paul corroborates that, if you looked at Romans chapter 4, that Abraham had faith to believe too. So while initially they're laughing at God, then they kind of got their bearings and then they began to believe God. And because they believed God, God did what was considered the impossible. And it says in Romans 4.18 that in hope against hope, that's kind of an interesting turn of phrase, 
They hoped against any possibility of hope. I wonder this morning, are we able to believe, as I said this morning, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? I don't know at Creekside Church whether we really believe God is able. To use us in this church to impact this city for Jesus. And I say city loosely, okay? The, the central Iowa area. And the world. And what I would say is God's already doing it. Why don't we get on board? God's doing some great things. Are we really, really ready to believe God to think of that which is unconscionable? And to imagine that which is unimaginable. And to see God do that which is unseeable. And to grab a hold of that which we believe is untouchable. Well, Abraham and Sarah did. And guess what? God did it. That's the amazing thing. It's like, well, yeah, this is a nice story. You know, they believed God and pie in the sky and all that stuff. But then God did it. They never saw it. The end of all of it, but, but God did it. So I wonder, you know, if, if we believe that there is a sovereign God who is able to do what we believe is impossible. So when God calls you out to you know, teach a class or to lead a Bible study or to go on a short-term mission project or give a little extra in the offering for some of these mission things or when God says uh, there, that we as a church, yeah, there's a direction we're going to go and we're going to become more intentional about loving our neighbors and ministering to the people around us and praying for them to come to know Jesus and boldly declaring the love of Christ to these people and believe that God will do something with we do it. We step out. And it gives us a promise. Is, then we will respond to the naysayers in the same way that God responded when Sarah laughed and he told Abraham this. He asked this question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And that's where I love this. See, the picture's on God. And we, we're, we're studying about Abraham, but it, it's really Abraham is kind of the channel to point us to God. Do we believe God is able to do the impossible? That God is able to reach people for Jesus so that, 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 that we are becoming infectious as a, as a congregation with, with the love of Christ to, to a world that needs Christ. I don't know about you, but I need the grace of God. And the world needs the grace of God. Read the newspapers for Pete's sake or listen to your podcast or whatever uh, Snapchat comes across your way. You will know soon enough that the world is desperately needing Christ. Think about what do we believe God to do that's impossible? Well, you can talk to John Bloom. I'm sure that there are a lot of people that thought John Bloom's condition was impossible. Stage three, colon cancer. Well, we have a God who's able to do the impossible. He doesn't always do what we want him to do, but he's able, so let's pray. And people prayed. Now, as far as I know, John Bloom has no trace of cancer. That doesn't happen to everybody. It's not intended to happen to everybody. Ask Joni Erickson Tata why that doesn't happen to everybody. But God is able, so what do we believe in God to do? Individually. I'm praying for my kids. God would form Christ in them. And that they would have a passion to know him. You know, John, uh, 3 John 4, 
Yeah, there's no greater joy than this to know that my children are walking in the truth. I look around the world and I think, why would my kids follow Christ? There's nothing in this world that would draw them to him except him. And he is able. There's one more hallmark of faith that we see in Abraham's life that becomes a, a magnet to us that we adore and aspire to. We courageously enact what is unthinkable. Verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, tested, tested. You know, I don't really like tests. I never did like them. This is a test so as to prove. And there are many times in our lives when God tests us if we are a follower of Jesus so as to prove that our faith is real. And this is the prime illustration of it, if you will. It's the greatest illustration of it. And it says, by faith Abraham offered up Isaac. Hebrews 11, verse 18, quotes Genesis 21, 12. And it declares, in Isaac, your descendants would be called. Okay, God, you gave me this son. Didn't believe you 25 years after. I thought it was going to never happen. Uh, I had this kid, and now you're telling me to take his life. He's the one through whom you said, I'm going to have all these descendants. The land of promise, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham cared for his son. You go back into Genesis. In Genesis 22, and he says, I want you to offer up Isaac, your only son, Isaac, your only son whom you love. I want you to take him, and I want you to take his life. But that was absurd. That was unheard of. God had never asked for a human sacrifice before. The demands of God's test contradicted his promise. And they ran contrary to everything in Abraham's rational mind, emotional mind, and religious practice. It was like you couldn't have asked him to do anything more contradictory. And the text says, he did it. You see, God was testing Abraham. And he tested Abraham and his loyalty. Is your loyalty to the person who promised or the person promised? Are you more loyal to me than you are to your son? How many of us, you know, you got children? You want to have kids? I only have one son. God asked me to take him out. I'm not sure. I mean, that gets it a little personal. That's what God was asking him to do. And he said, are you more faithful to, to me than you are to him? Where is your loyalty? Or is he your idol? He enacted the unthinkable because his confidence in God was unshakable. It says in the text, 
He didn't do this willy-nilly. He believed that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And in fact, he believed after he made his commitment to offer him that he was as good as dead. That's why it says in the text that he was a type. He offered him up. He, was, he would receive him back as a type because Abraham considered Isaac as good as dead, even though he actually never actually killed him. Sometimes faith calls us to do the unthinkable, which declares our devotion to God and demonstrates our dependence on God. Could you imagine of being any more, de- I mean, if I knew God was saying this, Abraham said, and he did it. I think of, uh, and I think I've mentioned Bob and Vera Hagman before, but Bob and Vera are an elderly couple who have children and grandchildren in the middle of Nebraska, and they've left them all to serve the Lord in the armpit of Europe uh, in some God-forsaken city to care for drug addicts and alcoholics so that they, they don't see their kids, they don't, see their, they don't have this proximity, this affinity and, a, and a ability to be with their children and grandchildren at every little whip stitch and whim. An example of people who do the unthinkable because they have confidence in God that is unshakable. I wonder this morning, some of you here maybe need to think about this unshakable God. Are you willing to surrender your self-directed life? To the Savior. Whew. I mean, I tell you, it's radical. Don't do it willy-nilly. I'm not a person who's going to call people forward and say, come to Jesus because it's just a life of peachy keen stuff and there will be no problems. No, a following Jesus means taking up your cross. This is it, life of faith. Okay, God, I surrender all. You say go camp out, I go camp out even if I never see how it turns out. Are we willing to courageously declare our faith before our family and friends? Man, you think that's, that's unthinkable. Are we able to sacrifice? I just talked to a young couple yesterday, and the, the, they're both working now, but the, the wife's uh, going to have their first child, and now that she's going to stay home. Whew. That's kind of a sacrifice. Yeah. Are we willing to spend our vacation doing ministry? That's what some of our people going to Haiti are doing. Oh, yeah, that's great. I'm going on a beach vacation. I'm going to Haiti. Destination vacation. I'm going to go sweat for Jesus. Are we willing to, young people, make a vow of chastity? I'm wait till they get married. Now, that's a foreign concept in a foreign land. Unbelievers, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the only thing I would say to you is, you say, that sounds like a bunch of stuff I don't want to get into. I would say to you, look, before you write off God, completely consider this, that he did exactly what he promised he'd do to Abraham and for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he raised up a son. And Isaac became the, the, 
the type of the person of Jesus because God the Son offered up his son Jesus on the cross and that sacrifice paid the debt that you and I deserve to pay so that if you and I would put our trust or our faith in Christ we would be delivered from our sinful self-directed life we'd be delivered and have purpose and meaning and a, and a, a life that has peace in our heart with eternity as our possession so before you write off God realize that what he did he's faithful He's not just radical, it's faithful. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let's be encouraged. I mean, the radical stuff that God calls us to do to step out in faith is really not too bad because God is faithful to fulfill his promise. We just go back and look at Jesus. That's what God did through the person and work of Jesus. God is able to empower us so that we will enter what is unknowable and endure the uncomfortable and I, the eternal, entertain the impossible and enact the unthinkable. The unblemished lamb that was caught in the thicket in Genesis chapter 22 because when Abraham raised the knife, God spared him. No, don't do it. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Now I know your allegiance is with me. And the ram caught in the thicket is a, a symbol of the, of the sacrifice, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Abraham's son was figuratively raised from the dead in the same way as a picture of what Jesus would do, rising from the dead, so that we would be declared righteous if we put our faith or our trust in him. When we celebrate communion, what we're doing is we're remembering the lamb sacrificed as the payment for our sins. His body broken and his blood shed, symbolized in the bread and the cup. And we're celebrating the fact that he did it so that we could live in him. It's open for everyone, if you're trusting in Jesus, to come. And thank God for the living faith so that we can be encouraged in faithful living. Let's pray. Father, as we come to celebrate uh, with you, we come to sing and do a few things before we uh, take the bread and the cup. I pray that your spirit would work in our lives and you would help us to follow Abraham, the man of faith. Give us grace for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because of your